0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Greetings.
1: Welcome to our virtual summit, Time to Rise 2020. I'm Naila Chaudhary, Director of Social Impact and Innovation, UC San Diego. Today's panel is in partnership with FSUN, Foundation for the Support of the United Nations, and Robert F. Kennedy, Human Rights Education. The present state of the world is of unrest. Changes we want to see may not always be easy, but that stepping up will always be worth it for us and for those after us. Transformation leaders believe in paving paths and leaving behind a legacy, a legacy for dignity and freedom for all. Leaders must advocate justice, peace, through collaborative efforts. Our key focus lies with how do we equip the custodians of the future with just, equal, and inclusive world. We desperately need more human rights and social justice restorers. Human rights violations and social injustice continues at an alarming rate. Responsible and conscious citizens are looking for answers. The pathway to moral empowerment is not easy, but Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization continues to to shine and guide us in the right direction. Led by human rights activist and lawyer, Kerry Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights has advocated for a more just and peaceful world since 1968. To address these issues and moral judgment, Today, we have speakers from RFK Speak Truth to Power program, one of the world's leading human rights organizations. The Speak Truth to Power program aims to build an educational culture in schools where human rights are prioritized. We must become a nation where protecting and advancing human rights is an active practice. This project aims to build greater capacity for educators to implement human rights education so that young people can become the next generation of human rights defenders. Today we have three esteemed speakers, Adnan Karim, who is the Managing Director of RFK Human Rights Education, Karen Robinson, Program Director, Speak Truth to Power, and Morgan Apple, Assistant Dean, Education and Community Outreach, UC San Diego. I'll briefly talk a bit about them. Starting with Adnan, Adnan Karim is a lifelong learner and believes in power of education. As a son of an immigrant and educators, he understands the power of knowledge and how much it can change lives and history. Acknowledging that education is never neutral, Adnan tries to ensure schools put social justice and human rights at the core of learning and engagement. And going to Karen Robinson. Karen Robinson is a birthright Quaker and seeks on a daily basis to let her life speak the Quaker's testimonies of simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and stewardship of the earth. Her work in the field of human rights education has allowed her at the local and global level to bring her personal centering beliefs to work that is purposeful, transformative, and advances the commitment to defend, promote, and protect the dignity and worth of all members of the human family. Going to Morgan, Morgan is the Assistant Dean, Education and Community Outreach of UC San Diego. He oversees a diverse portfolio in lifespan education, including pre-college programming, credentials and certificate programs for clinicians, practitioners and administrators, and active adults over 50. He worked with a number of school districts and policy research institutes to explore the impacts of legislated and organically generated change agent in PK post-secondary. He's a staunch advocate in support of the arts in all of the forms and believes that they have transformative powers. In times of great crisis, he rightfully believes that the arts tell our stories and help to define our shared humanity. Now, going to Adnan, I would start with the first question. Adnan, why is speak truth to power a compelling method of affecting long-lasting social change? Especially, how are you addressing some of the recent events of human rights and social justice? If you could tell us a bit about RFK leadership in human rights.
0: Uh, yes, thank you. First of all, Naila, thanks for for having Karen and I. Uh, from rfk human rights and allowing us some time to speak on our work and 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 what we're doing to advance and protect human rights so um, to start answering your first part of your question around what, you know why is speak truth to power a compelling way of really sustaining long-lasting change at its core it's honestly about our belief in the power of young people and if you look at history Young people have been instrumental in affecting change, and we see it now. And so when you think about Speak Truth to Power, it's this notion that anyone can be a human rights defender, specifically young people, and that they don't have to be a Malala or a Muhammad Yunus or a Bishop Tutu to be a human rights defender. While the circumstances of prominent human rights defenders might be unique and, and not their own, but the characters that they embodied and the choices that they make are actually not far from reach from your everyday young person anywhere, whether they're here in Harlem where I live or they're in San Diego where, where Morgan might be, right? So the, the circumstances are different, but Speak Truth to Power really aims at Giving a space and environment through the lens of human rights education of how they can make the right choices build the right relationships become more self-aware of who they are to then Understand the people that they want to be in society to affect change That's one of the first things is that core ethos and philosophy that young people definitely have the power They don't have to wait to become older to do that I think one of the biggest things that really is is systemically different about how we approach it is that we work in partnership 100 percent partnership with educators and what we do in trainings or asset development with them is really allowing human rights to be at the center of everything that they learn and engage with young people that you know when i'm thinking of my own experience as a child going through the education system it really was what we see now it's you know you learn a math problem to pass a test you learn how to write something so that your grammar is right which is all important but there isn't that notion of Where are you centering problem solving of social justice issues, or how are you problem solving the abuse of human rights within that learning? And that's where we come into play, is we really center human rights and the ability to place young people at the center of solving those issues and advocating and organizing on behalf of those issues through learning. For example, you know, this year at our annual gala, we're honoring Dolores Huerta, who was instrumental in advancing farm workers' rights right so you think about an issue of farm workers rights and their inability to get paid correctly inability to have right time off and being able to even have the right to express their rights and you could take a math problem and understand how to solve and multiply and divide, but how do you center the issue of farm workers' rights in terms of equal pay and put that and frame that in a math problem where students are engaging in the ability to understand how farm workers are being abused and their ability to be paid fairly and thinking about how can they also be instrumental in advocating for that. So, you know, there's always an opportunity to place and center human rights issues, whether it's a math problem, you wanna think about science problems, how do you bring in the issues of climate change? If it's a social studies problem, how do you think about right now in this current climate? How do you bring up issues of someone like John Lewis and protecting democracy? There's always an avenue to really center human rights in the learning process and really put problem solving in it and not just to complete a test. The other part of it is that we really build and work in partnership with educators. There's a lot of nonprofit organizations or educational institutions that are external partners that are, whether they intend to or not, are competing for teacher time. And teachers are already limited in time with their students. Whereas we see our place is to build capacity for educators and support them. Where we know that a lot of them don't have enough support, and so I think that's one way that we really have long-lasting change is that we're 100% committed to support our educators as probably the most sustainable piece outside of the family of a child's educational career. And the last thing I'll say is that we really, the part of it is is really getting students to really understand that they have a place to take action and that they don't have to wait till they're done with school and. Completed college to get into their job. At that, the whole program really cultivates young people to take take action now. So, really quickly, I'll highlight. We recently put out a, a lesson plan. You know, right when COVID hit, um, we thought, w- w- what better than to put out a lesson around using COVID and the coronavirus as an example, as a case study about when things like this happen how are rights at risk? And it's not just about health, but that there's an intersection of rights being at risk during a pandemic. It's your right to to accurate information. It's your right to social security. Um, It's your right to freedom of expression. So there's a lot of rights at risk during a pandemic. And we put out a lesson where we centered Dr. Fauci and Dr. Tedros as the human rights defenders and asked educators to, to, to... have their students go on a journey and a learning engagement to understand all the rights that are at risk at play during a pandemic. So that's how we address COVID. And there's other ways that we've done that too. We also understand that there's racial tension going on specifically here in the US. And so we've, we've provided virtual sessions with educators specifically around social emotional learning with the equity lens. And how can educators really build students from a character building lens to really tackle the issues of racial equity and, 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 and things of that nature. We've also provided a training in partnership with, with facilitator around how can educators really build an anti-racist classroom, not just a set of values, but as a set of behaviors and practices that it can implement in their classroom to really tackle um, racism and look at anti-racism as a daily practice and not as just an identity. And lastly, we're, we're, we're proud to say we're partnering strongly with the AFT, uh, the American Federation of Teachers, and putting out a series of lesson plans that are under the umbrella of how to protect democracy when democracy is at risk and highlighting prominent human rights defenders that have upheld democracy when it's been at risk throughout history and now. And so those are just a few ways that we're addressing uh, some of the, the current climate in our, in our time now. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Karen, I would go to you as one of the founder directors of Speak Truth to Power. I would love to know that I'm sure the journey hasn't been easy from the beginning to now. Like if you could speak a bit about how you started going towards your goal and how did the program achieve its goal? And what are the obstacles you all faced and your views?
2: Thank you, and I just want to echo Adnan's appreciation for this partnership and for this time with you. Um, Partnerships are the cornerstone of of everything that we do and need to do to advance human rights and social justice everywhere. So thank you. Um, Yeah, you know, I have the great pleasure of having worked with Speak to to Power from the beginning. Uh, At that time, I was the director of human rights education at Amnesty International USA, and Carrie came to us with this book that she'd just written, this brilliant uh, collection of stories of human rights defenders from around the world, most of them people that you just didn't know. Um, and some of them famous names like Bishop Tutu. Um, and we started very simply looking at how we can bring her, could bring her work into the educational ecosystem. Um, and we started very simply with activities and um, ways to bring it to the Amnesty International community. And then about 12 years ago, we partnered with the New York State United Teachers, recognizing that, as Adnan had mentioned, teachers' plates are so full. And it's one thing to just hand up, here's this great idea, use it. And another to say, here's a lesson aligned to Common Core or State Core, State um, uh competencies that you need to address. Um, And so we partnered and created the lessons that we have now. So I would say that was one of the first obstacles, knowing that the landscape of education in the US specifically is not one where human rights education is prevalent or recognized or acknowledged. How do we get it in there? And so as Adnan had, had noted, we looked at what teachers were doing anyway. And we said, this is not about adding on. This is how you can map it in. You can map human rights learning through the stories of these courageous human rights defenders into any subject area. And so so we started on that trajectory and really looking at how the stories of someone like Kasawa or Wangari Mathai could be mapped into environment or women's studies or, again, the full spectrum. The second piece that we we recognized was that if this was going to really take hold, we needed to partner, as Adnan had mentioned, with educators, teachers, classroom teachers. When we look at the student at the center, everything that we do kind of circles around that. We know teachers are the the primary key person we needed to work with. So we started to develop educator trainings. and then we just continue to evolve, looking at where and how, speak truth to power and human rights education, really work to advance uh, principles and values that, that we think are critical, this idea of dignity and worth for everyone. Um, and we got to the point where we are today, where we really, um, our vision of this just and peaceful world is really grounded in three core goals for us now. The first being building educator capacity, 100%. How do we ensure that they have the training and the educational assets necessary to seamlessly map this work into what they're already doing? The second is really thinking about those mindsets, attitudes and behaviors, right? In the US, we call that social emotional learning. With our international affiliates, they have other names, but again, that idea of how do we advance those mindsets? so that when young people are seeing the world through this broad human rights lens, they see their place, they understand it, they understand the relationships, the dynamics. Um, And that third, as Adnan had mentioned, is about becoming a defender. That we start with the stories of defenders as a point of engagement and learning, and we end with young people saying, that's me. That's me in my classroom, in my school, in my community and beyond. Um, And so, you know that's the trajectory we're on now. Um, the challenges are are significant because you know the work is politicized, and and what we do is just come back to the core of this idea of dignity and worth and the human family and how do we how do we stand by when someone is suffering? How do we how do we you you don't? Um, but it's it's. It's exciting when you see a teacher have an aha moment and say, I can see this. I see how this is part of my teaching practice. And I see how it's part of why I got into teaching. And then you see students have the aha moments where they may be studying a math problem, as Adnan said about farm workers, and they're like, oh, okay, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. And that's ultimately um, what human rights education, that's that transformative nature and just really core to to what we're doing why we're doing it and there's so many brilliant stories um i just want to share three quickly so the first um in cambodia we conducted many trainings with monks recognizing where learning happens right it doesn't always happen in a classroom in a formal setting um and when we did the evaluation we had numerous uh participants say something to the effect of, and one very specifically, ironically, I felt the light bulb go off in my head. All of the history of my country, the challenges that we face, the restrictions, this is a pathway into how we can understand that and teach about it. The second I would share is when we started to think about how to teach young kids about this, right? Because sometimes people say human rights, right? We can't talk to little kids about this. We did it very simply. Um, And we talk about needs and wants. Um, And we were in a school, a private school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And after the semester, we were having a conversation with some of these kindergartners. And one of the kindergartners was looking through a magazine. They're making their needs and wants, you know, collages. And the little girl said, you know, Miss, an UGG is a want. I need shoes but I don't need Uggs and that kind of understanding at a young age is really powerful and the third story I mean of many I'd share is one of our teachers Robin Oconee who was a school counselor in Long Island and was working with young people who were facing so many issues and trauma and challenges and in her counselor hat she saw how speak truth to power and the stories of human rights defenders could be used as mirrors and windows so, these young students she was working with could see their stories and could see a path for themselves and could also help other students see that just because you haven't experienced this doesn't mean that it's not something you need to pay attention to. Now, she's one of our key partners at SUNY Stony Brook, and we're advancing this work into the field of social work and social welfare. Um, so, you know, the opportunities are limitless, and it all started. And it all starts with the stories of these human rights defenders, which are you and me and all of us at the end of the day.
1: Thank you. Like going through the history, you moved my emotions to a time when 2012 I first met Kerry Kennedy and Mohammed Yunus was getting an award from the center all my life I was in awe of the family, and here she was, so humble. Her humility touched me so much. And today I'm, I'm so honored that finally RFK, Human Rights Education, and UC San Diego, uh, the Education and Community Outreach, have partnered, and that is a beautiful path forward. And then going to uh, Morgan with your question So, you are now the custodian to carry it forward, the partnership, and uh, how are you planning this collaboration in education, and what means do you want to use as human rights defender and activating essential 21st century metacognitive skills, and what are your plans going forward with this partnership?
3: Yes uh thank you Nyla and and it's it's a pleasure to to be joined by by all of you and um I was really trying to frame this I was trying to put a context around uh this work and I turned to uh, a quote by, uh, by Robert Kennedy that I really think sort of captures the essence of today, which is, few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events. It is from numberless, diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped. And we've always engaged in this type of collaborative work, um, and it's really born out of an enthusiasm for engaging community partners And putting in the real work to transform communities and campuses in authentic, cooperative, and reciprocal ways, which is a lot different than the way traditional universities work. And for us, at least in education community outreach, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the 17 Sustainable Goals have been part and parcel of this longer-term development of our programming, sort of offers up illumination for us. Um, And we were going down that pathway quite steadily. But current circumstances, I think, as as Anand uh, mentioned, um, that we see things on a daily basis within our country and around the world, injustice, racism, violence, uh, and the pandemic has attached a real sense of urgency uh, to this work. And I think it also very much touches upon, Nyla, what you were talking about is that our sense of predictability and stability, those things that we rely on to keep going have been interrupted by uncertainty and anxiety. And having worked uh, in schools and with kids and with teachers for nearly two decades now, um, this is incredibly important as we look to try to forestall things like toxic and chronic stress. And we know that these kids uh, engage the world around them, and they look to us as adults for guidance. And if you know anything about kids, that they want to take immediate action. They don't want to sit around and watch the world go by. Um, but at the same time, many of them wonder what they can do Is young people with very little self-perceived power, just one small person in one small school. And as adults, I think we find ourselves bedeviled by similar concerns. So if we go back uh, to, to the RFK quote, we find, I think, that there is strength and numbers, and there are synergies that emerge. And um, just like a good school production, everybody has a role to play. Um, and in every case of creating positive social capital, especially within education and across segments of education, there needs to be a focal point. And I think for us uh, at the university, speaking truth to power provides an entry point in discussions with uh, pre-K through 12 teachers and for school communities. I think, um, Adnan um, mentioned, uh, I think we we talked a little bit about the burden upon teachers' time. And we understand that adding one more thing um, does not have linear effects. It has logarithmic effects. So for us at the university, it is the idea of how can we pay heed to what teachers are doing? Can we provide salary point credit for what they are doing? But the fantastic thing is it... This offers a vehicle for school communities to come together around engaging materials and resources, but also to explore their use in unique and contextually grounded ways. There is a way that they interpret them. There is a way that they um, look at them uh, locally. And uh, we then have an opportunity to impact pre-service and in-service education for teachers, administrators, and for staff. Um, And and not just for schools and districts, but we look at our other partners and county offices of education who offer aligned programming. And I'm thinking locally uh, in terms of expanded learning and how everybody can lend a hand in supporting this cause in somewhat non-conventional ways. But we do live in a non-conventional world today. But I think even more importantly, there is a unique occasion for parent education in support of human rights. And I think it shows that one person can serve as an inspiration for change. And that support from educational institutions can serve as a catalyst and a vehicle for change. And that's really the way that I see this sort of all coming together um, very holistically and in ways that don't don't supplant, but supplement, that add to the conversation, that drive the conversations and that let uh, local schools sort of figure out where they want to go with it.
1: Thank you. Hearing all of you, it's something I didn't have in my thought, but it is something we could discuss or discuss later. But looking at the present situation with children stuck in the house, not going to school, women in the house who are maybe the domestic violence numbers I was hearing yesterday from a World Bank meeting that it has multiplied 60% more. And the children are getting abused because it's constantly in the house. And I was thinking, how do we, that leads to my next question to Adnan, that how do we digitally reach them out where what are you doing from the center? So uh, how are you taking speak truth to power needs At this digital age and with the virtual needs which is happening now which might go on for another year, how are you planning to digitalize it and take it to people who really need it? And would you think of doing it locally first and then taking it globally because you're all over the world? So Adnan, I would (laughs) ask you.
0: Yeah, I mean obviously like like everyone else we we were burdened and tasked actually was a better way to think about how we need to uh, sort of reinvent and re-strategize our approach. We, we had gone through a whole 2020 goal setting and strategic planning of how we're gonna meet the goals that Karen had laid out around building educator capacity and social emotional learning and then training students to take action. And this was all planned to be in person. All the core of our work has always been in person. I mean, it's, it's much more powerful that way. COVID hit and then we, you know, obviously we're all stuck at home, so how do we continue the work? We thought very carefully and, and, and luckily for us, we're, we're a small team, so we we're able to pivot v- fairly quickly um, and we've pretty much gone completely virtual, um, so, you know, when you think about the first angle of what, what Karen had spoke about, when we, when we think about building educator capacity, that is largely in two ways. One is through trainings. And the second one is through human rights, educational asset development, whether it's resources, lesson plans, activities, a, a, a gamut of, of things that educators can utilize. So when you think about the trainings, that one was actually fairly easy for us. We've, everything that we would have done in person, we've gone completely remote and started advertising, promoting and marketing all of our, our trainings, completely virtual on Zoom, like we are right now. Um, and with the help of our lead educators and partners, we've been able to do. Um, we've been able to do a series of trainings so far, virtually since about March, or, and and moving forward. And so we've gone through trainings where we've gone through the introduction of Speak Truth to Power. We've done informational webinars on how to use our resources, how to use our lesson plans. Um, you know, we've. You know one of the biggest things that i, I want to highlight now is 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 we're in our third year partnership with discovery education which is uh you know arguably the premier online platform for for educational instruction uh not just in the us but globally and we have a very very great partnership with discovery and luckily with them we were actually ahead of the curve we've actually created a lot of digital content that is readily available for educators to use right now. Kind of to Karen's point, one thing that we do right now is every other week, we have what we call a happy hour engagement with our our lead educators. And it's very informal. And I don't want to underestimate the value of this informal setting with educators because this space is constructed for a very unfiltered, raw, place where we can hear directly from educators dealing with virtual learning distance learning right now on a timely basis of what we we understand what they're going through from a basic human level we understand what they're going through from a professional level of their challenges and opportunities pivoting into this distance learning and we understand most importantly what they need right now and what we've learned right now what they need is readily accessible material that they can use right away with their students in a digital way. For example, with Discovery Education, we've been able to create uh, a virtual field trip. And what this virtual field trip is, is a way for students to literally sit at home and, and, and observe a conversation between Van Jones and prominent students who led the March for Our Lives protest in Washington and watch a, a a critical dialogue on something like gun violence through through people who have been leading the charge and and literally feel like they're sitting in the in the space with them and, and watching this dialogue or watching Kailash Satyarthi talk about the the challenges on freeing children from from forced labor or listening from Jan, Jazz Jennings around the challenges of of being a trans woman and trans youth in our society so There's a virtual field trip. There's video vignettes when they can hear directly from human rights defenders from their own words around their journey of becoming a human rights defender and learning their ability to really relate on a personal level from those human rights defenders. We have a... um, uh, Karen just finished a, a virtual training webinar where she's literally walking educators through how to use all of our material so they don't have to sit and find time to sit through a lot of our trainings. They can sit through this through this webinar and understand, okay, if I wanna use a lesson plan, where can I find this lesson plan on climate change? Boom, Karen has provided a virtual training session where they can understand and familiarize themselves with our resources and be able to literally plug and play on a virtual setting with their students. So there's a a variety of things and and I really wanna shout out Discovery Education on that because they've been an instrumental partner in, in, in developing a lot of digital assets for that. Another thing I want to talk about that we've done virtually now, we just finished a, a three-track series. There's an educator track where we went through a track of educator trainings virtually where we've gone through how to implement social-emotional learning into human rights education, how to use social-emotional learning through an equity lens. We brought in a partner to talk about how to build an anti-racist classroom. We've done all this virtually and we've been able to provide that capacity building. We've also done a student track where uh, you, you had told us in the introduction to Morgan. Morgan, we're glad to hear that you're a huge advocate of the arts. We've done a huge arts track with our arts program manager in the power of storytelling and the arts, specifically through theater, to promote and advocate and advance human rights through theater. And we've we've. Uh, luckily, we've been able to partner with an organization called the Theater of the Oppressed and, and other folks and really guide through mentorship through a five-part series with students to really understand how they can really use their voice through the arts to advocate for the human rights issues that they care about. And most importantly, we've done a youth organizing session where you know we're literally training students on a track of how, what does it mean to community organize when you look at a lot of our defenders of advocates and organizers how do we create a space virtually where we walk students through how to create your long-term goals what are the tactics you're going to use through uh, community organizing how are you going to measure and evaluate the effectiveness of your community organizing if maybe your issue is around voting access or your issue is around the wealth gap in your community how are we really centering students and young people around how to tackle this through the power of community organizing? And we did that virtually. And students that went through our virtual organizing session are, are as we speak, implementing those ideas in their local and global community and affecting change right now. And so that's one thing that we did. Another thing, you know, when, when virtual learning came across was, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, all students will become virtual we were speaking to one of our lead educators in Austin, and she had mentioned, it's great that, you know, you want to provide distance learning, but not every student has equitable access to technology or equitable access to internet to even access that education. And luckily, we had partners that were champions of our work. We were able to engage with them, and we were able to, in partnership with them, distribute tablets to students in need who now didn't have access to it because they simply didn't have a tablet, now have a tablet to engage in learning. So there's a variety of ways in which we've, we've sort of, um, the world has put us to task and every day we're trying to figure out a way to, to meet, meet the challenges of, of one, bringing human rights education in the classroom, building capacity for educators, and really figuring out what's our role into creating access to education and creating equitable access to that in, in, in a very challenging time.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. These address a lot of interesting things for me, but uh, looking at the neglected, or I would say underrepresentative communities where they don't have access to Internet, are you thinking of broader um, partnership with International Telecommunication Union to sort of ensure that people who don't have access... With the new normal, they do have the access at night? Like, are you thinking of?
0: Well, so, I mean, we we haven't done anything beyond what we did with the Austin School District of, of being able to assist in providing tablets. What we want to do is be an advocate for innovative ideas. For example, in Austin, what they did there was, you know, when remote learning happened, they weren't utilizing school buses. And then these are just sitting around. And something that they did there was repurposed school buses in partnership with telecommunication organizations and created hotspots. And then those buses would drive into communities that didn't have access with the repurposed school buses to create access. And so one thing that our organization can do is be advocates for that. Uh, uh, One avenue, you know, within RFK Human Rights, we really engage in the business community, right? They have their corporate social responsibility departments and we have a we have a program called compass that really engages specifically in the business community but more specifically with investors and so everything is interconnected our programs aren't completely siloed so we have a conversation with our compass department and say how are you not only nudging the investing community to think about the supply chain and and protecting human rights there but how can you also nudge the business community to think about how we partner with the education departments. And so how does then the business community also through their philanthropic arms assist in that? So maybe it's not just about Austin, how do we have presence elsewhere and have them be also uh, be able to provide that financial assistance to school districts or other organizations to provide that, that equity. And so a lot of that comes in our advocacy work and in partnerships. So the issues that we see firsthand in education, we bring that messaging to our advocate team and, and help help and figure out ways for how they can assist in advocating for that change in those communities. So it's, it's a constant conversation with us as well.
1: Thank you very much because I pushed this because you know that we are celebrating the 75th uh, session of UN General Assembly. And this would be broadcasted during the General Assembly. And I would want many partners to come forward with you all after hearing you talk and the possibilities of larger partnership in the future. Going to Karen. Karen, I'm intrigued by your life and I want to know something that when was that aha moment, the purpose when you found to be linked with such a beautiful cause and your life story, if you could share anyone which really moved you to be involved so heavily globally.
2: Sure. So so I'm gonna to get to that, but I just wanna add one other thing that we did virtually because we talked so much about defenders. Thank one you. of the other things we did pretty quickly was line up a series of five human rights defenders to go into the virtu- virtually go into classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had Derek Hamilton, who's one of the leading economists in the US now and, and Stephen Bradbury who's a community organizer, Marina Pitslikova talking about domestic violence. And we had Sonita, who's a young uh, child marriage, um, working against child marriage and a a rap artist. And then we had two young students from Indianapolis talk about their local advocacy. So again, you know, our our mission of bringing these defender voices as as inspiration and to inform how young people see themselves um, was also really something we did pretty quickly. Um, And a story that inspired me, my goodness, my life is really like, To get me to where I am right now, um, I will share two stories that really, so as a birthright Quaker, my life was really this idea of bearing witness and being part of your community was always something that surrounded me. Um, When I moved to Mexico City in high school, um, it was my first time really significantly outside of the United States. I'd been to Canada because we lived in Vermont. but i was astonished to hear people tell me that when you travel in mexico this was i'm old so this was like in the late 70s they said you know maybe you should say you're canadian and at one point um when uh at that point the president came they would put the flags up on reforma and periferico as very ceremonial on my campus the american school in mexico city um some of the Mexican students burned the American flag. So for me, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, like my worldview hadn't allowed me to engage with that yet. So it really changed the trajectory of how I thought and saw the world um, when I came back to the United States. And then I would say the second experience that really informed me um, was when I was working at the American University, I was leading the Center for Volunteerism and Community Service and so you know i was doing this work i was studying um doing my grad work in non-formal education um and so i was learning about paulo Freire, and i was learning about popular education i was learning about all this stuff um and one of my mentors in the dc public school connie spinner this amazing woman um you know here i thought I'm doing really good work. I'm a good Quaker, I'm studying all this stuff and I'm going into DC from AU doing this work. And she was like, stop for a second, right? And think about who you are, where you're going and your intentions. And it was kind of the first person that said to me, intention alone is not good enough, right? You need to be informed, you need to be aware, you need to know where you should be in anything that's going on around you. So this idea of understanding, am I a leader? Am I a follower? Am I walking side by side? Really understanding where my voice is important and where my voice needs to be more of an amplifier and let someone else be the main, um, she really taught me that. And and I think those two experiences, um, grounded in my faith base, challenged me to say the world is more complex Right. And there are people who are struggling and facing challenges that I will never understand. But I need to be open to understanding those and and be ready to um, know that I don't have all the answers, nor should I. Um, And so I need to constantly like I love Adnan's personal thing like lifelong learner. We need to continually be taking information in from everyone and every source, understanding our own bandwidth, but know that um, that we just don't jump into a situation to think you're gonna solve it because you have the privilege and the, and the opportunity to do that. That's not always the way to go. Mm-hmm. And so when we work with our youth, that's part of what we try to communicate, right? If you're coming from a place of, of privilege and opportunity, see the world through this broad lens, listen to every, really listen to the people who are in those communities, dealing day in and day out with whatever issue it is, and be there in a way that, you're, that, that you support. Either you lead if necessary, support when necessary, but just be fully present and aware of you and your relationships. Um, so I would say those are kind of two, two pivotal aha moments for me.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for sharing your personal stories. Morgan, going back and because of the time shortage, I would like, to ask you that looking at the 17 development goals, which of the goals or goal is the closest to your passion and work? And how would you connect to your work and your personal life with that?
3: Uh, yeah, that that that's a good question because you know when uh, I was first thinking about it, I said, well, I love all of them and they're, they're all intertwined. And how can you love one more than another? Um, but I would say that the closest for me is certainly um, the uh, Sustainable Development Goal four, which is quality education, and that's really the one that's been closest to my heart and has really been sort of my life's work, whether it's in the context of policy research, arts education. Or uh, in an instructional or administrative capacity at a university. But especially now, I, you know, I work at a public research university with a service mission, and we are all bound by the moral act to bring the weight of the institution uh, to bear in service of our communities, and these communities are being increasingly redefined and I think um, Karen makes an excellent point that we don 't do the traditional sort of thing where we ride down from campus on a steed and say we 're here to solve the problem, but you know we have to understand that you move at the speed of goodwill, you move at the speed of trust, and these relationships are reciprocal um, and and not one sided so I think in in that spirit um and and that idea of you know this sort of uh, mutual em- empowerment uh, i would say that a very close second would be um s- uh, sustainable development goal 17 which is partnership because it speaks to synergies and it speaks to reciprocity um and it speaks to going as karen says beyond going beyond intent and making uh, and, uh, you know, making a longer term commitment. So I think uh, those are the two that I would say that are, are closest to me and uh, ones that impact my life on a daily basis.
1: Thank you so much, Morgan. Adnan, I would ask you the same question.
0: Uh, with no surprise, it, it would be the same two as Morgan's, which, is, which is, makes it more exciting to work closely with you, Morgan. Um, for me, obviously, starting with number four, from, from a personal note, you know, uh, it's the whole reason why I was born in the States. My, my family is from Bangladesh at a time when it was very impoverished. And, you know, like many immigrants, uh, your parents choose to bring even before they have children. You know, I wasn't even born then, but they were married and said, "I'm we're going to move to the States because I want my children to be to have a better life and a better education and to have the choices that maybe they didn't have. And, you know, being able to understand that sacrifice also came with the, the sort of the responsibility and understanding that, you know, where I'm grateful to have that and that the awareness that that opportunity isn't everywhere. And I remember for me, you know, it's honoring that that sacrifice that my, my parents have made. But then it was also my, when my first time going back to Bangladesh was maybe when I was the first time I went back to Bangladesh as, as more aware of the world as an adolescent slash adult was around high school. And I remember going there and I remember getting off the plane and it's hot and you could quite literally, you know, smell Poverty. You can smell struggle and you, you could see it in a way that I didn't see coming from from Nashville, Tennessee, where, where we were living at that time. And I remember one image distinctly that I think for, for whatever reason till this day is the one that hasn't is it's hard to, to get rid of is I'm sitting in my AC car and driving to my aunt and uncle's house where we're about to go stay for, for, for the time. And I look to my left and I see someone else in a a car in their AC and a guy's eating a banana. They're eating the banana, he finishes the banana and he has the peel and he throws the peel out the car. Then I see someone who looks to be close to my age as a child pick up the banana peel and start eating it. And I'm like, wow, look look at the difference. Here am I, Bengali kid, but born in a different circumstance, traveling here, witnessing Someone not thinking of a you know he's just eating his banana, he's throwing out, and literally in a split second, the complete opposite spectrum of how someone was living. And so it was that exposure to poverty, which was the first thing that really, I think, was hard to escape, and hard for me to not acknowledge the privilege and then the responsibility I should have. To honor that, and what is my role in, in alleviating poverty, and what is the role of education? You know, as a father who's an educator, a mother who works in educator in education. Um, so that was that first experience for me that I, I could never quite let go, and was that moment for me to say I have to commit my life to making sure that even if it's one child doesn't have to be f- their only option is a banana peel. How can I be a part of that system? It might not be completely eradicating poverty, but there's a there's a system and education is a part of that. The second part of that is to to SDG number 17. I, I firmly believe in partnerships. Nothing can happen in silo. And it's not just transactional partnerships. It's talking about transformative partnerships. And an aha moment for me was when I was working in a previous organization with specifically with Mercy Corps was and, and we follow this ethos in Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights is those closest to the problem have the best solutions right those who are facing the issues and we were in Uganda and Kenya and we were working with this uh with two conflicting tribes along the border of Uganda and Kenya and these tribes were violently against one another you're talking about the worst of the worst raiding each other's cattle they were raping women they were killing each other stealing I mean, the worst of the worst of kind of violence that could erupt. And it happened as a result of lack of access to natural resources because these are grazing, these are nomadic tribes. And there wasn't an ability to have a natural resource sharing agreement that would have mitigated that violence. And what I saw something that they were doing well was it's in partnership with them and not coming in as a savior, not coming as. As those experts with the answers and imparting that and enforcing that but saying okay you all were the ones dealing with violence or perpetuating the violence let's sit together and understand what do you believe is the solutions to that and listening to it and using that as the process to build solution and it was this notion of how do you work with a community versus for a community it's a drastic difference and that's to that ethos of, of I think SDG number 17 is how do we really work with communities that are most at harm with communities that are most marginalized and, and and create the solutions in partnership with them and and really thinking of that as the sustainable piece to really meet these goals and so those are the those I think are the two that I'm most passionate about. Thank you Karen.
2: So I would say my friends speak my mind um i agree with both Adnan and morgan completely um the uh, the third that i would add though and I, I think particularly because of the time we're in now is sdg3 well-being and health i i think what this pandemic has laid bare for all of us in the u.s and i think elsewhere is um the the tragedy of of a lack of public health and good good health care you know nothing it, nothing else will matter if we're dying because we don't have our health, right? Um, And I think that's just really weighing on me now, but I would agree education and partnerships and how we do this all together is really critical.
1: Thank you. And thank you, Adnan, Karen, and Morgan. Thank you for your wisdom, experience. Thank you for the vast uh, knowledge you've shared with us. Very grateful. Thank you very much.